Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Joe Lee on forgiveness. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the fiction category for episode number 166 with Greg Ruth and Ethan Hawke on Meadowlark. Hey, this is Ethan Hawke and... This is Greg Ruth. We're here with Meadowlark, a coming-of-age crime drama. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Joe Lee is a cartoonist, illustrator, writer, and former circus clown. And he's just published a graphic novel about the Holocaust that he both wrote and illustrated called Forgiveness. The story of Eva Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz twin experiments. Joe, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Just fine. It's so good to see you, Trey. It's my pleasure, Joe. So when did you first learn of Eva and her story? Well, you know, here in Indiana, um, she has had become quite well known. And she worked to to have her story out. So all kinds of um, school kids, adults, just anybody interested in her story, she you'd ask her and she would come to appear. And she, um, yeah, in, in fact, I was just talking to a friend this morning who said his stepdaughter said, oh yeah, I know that story. She visited my high school class years ago. So that was one thing, it's, um, she told it, there's a wonderful documentary by Ted Green about her, there've been books, I mean, you look on online and you will see lots of interviews. And um, several years ago, my wife, uh, who was an art teacher in our local school system, is a, had received a couple of grants from the Lilly Endowment, uh, a teacher renewal grants. And so they meet in Terre Haute um, for a few days in the summer and there were a group of teachers that said, look, come with us to the Candles Museum. Bess thought, well, she had been going there for years and years and had never actually gone in person to hear Eva speak. And so she went that Saturday afternoon and she called me immediately and said, Joe, you've got to come over and hear her. You have to meet Eva. And so it was several months before we were able to get back. But in the meanwhile, we went to um, Pittsburgh and stayed with some friends. And my friend Mark is involved in the comic book business. They both, both he and his wife teach at the University of Pittsburgh. But there was a comic book project in Pittsburgh called Chutzpah that was telling the stories of survivors of the Holocaust. And, you know, small vignettes, and um, and I was just thinking at the time that the whole arc of Eva's story from this childhood in a village in Romania to Auschwitz and Birkenau to Terre Haute, Indiana, and then to forgiveness that it needed a much fuller telling and I'd draw pictures. <laughs> 
So let's uh, start telling that story of Eva, her twin sister Miriam, and her mom and dad. What was life like for Eva and her family up until 1940? Well, it was a small village, Romania, in Transylvania, uh, which is not a fictional place, and their <laughs> Dracula is not there. <laughs> and it was, it was uh, her father was a farmer, an Orthodox Jew, and uh, and quite observant, although they were the only Jewish family in this uh, little village of Ports, Romania, and lived in kind of the belief that many people often do that when they see things happening in other places, you think, well, that's never going to affect us. We will be safe in this village. And, and especially we'll be safe because we know everybody. We are friends of everyone. But then, um, of course, with the rise of, of the Nazis and the spread of fascism and, and the virulent anti-Semitism, uh, things started to go wrong. And there was a point her father and his brother were arrested. They were beaten up by the um, authorities. And, and they went to Palestine to see if that would be a possibility that they would move there. But Eva's mother said no it would be too difficult to move her parents who were quite old and and infirm. And so we'll stay, this won't happen to us. And then of course, once uh, Hungary took over that part of Transylvania and they had a, a coup, there was a fascist government allied with the Nazis and then everything really started to happen. Uh, the, and people turned away from them. And not and just so, that, but really started to bully not just the family, but specifically the girls as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are the things, we all know what it's like to be in school and to be picked on. But in this case, it was... Uh, I mean, when the teachers and everyone is involved in it and you have no defenders, uh, there were things like they would be, even Miriam would be blamed for everything. And one of the punishments that they had to endure were um, on the wooden floor of the schoolroom, they spread um, dried corn kernels. And the girls had to kneel on the corn kernels, hmm. uh, which, and they had to spend, I mean, an hour or more kneeling there. And it's a, if you've ever, well, we've all stepped on a stone. We've all knelt on a stone, but to have to continue to do that. And that was one of the beginning things where as um, that, anti-Semitism in the area grew and people that they knew and loved were afraid and turned away from them from them and they they lost friendships and defenders um, finally they 
had a, a man from a neighboring village, a Jewish man who would come in and teach the girls. And it just, um, it, they tried escaping finally. And the um, local youth who had allied themselves with the, the Nazis, they turned them back and forced them to act, the family to actually become prisoners in their own home. And after four years of this terror, things become even worse, where even her family are rounded up and sent to a ghetto meant for other Jews and gypsies and anybody else that the Nazis deemed to be an evil or a burden to society. What were the conditions in this ghetto and where was it in proximity to that farm of theirs? Well, it was, um, I mean, I, I, I can look up the name because I had forgotten the actual name, but what it was, it had been a brick factory. And so it, it was an, a, a brick building that was used to house the um, troops who guarded the ghetto. And so it wasn't, uh, you can see ghettos in like uh, Krakow, the remains of the ghettos, which were, the Jews were moved from their homes across the Vistula River into the Jewish ghetto, which was, um, they were buildings and they forced more and more and more people into the ghetto over time. But this was just an open bare field with a brick guardhouse in the center. And it was, um, yeah, it's um, Simlo Silvene, which I may be mispronouncing. It's a, a Romanian name, but it, but it, was, it wasn't that terribly far away. Um, but there was no housing, almost no food or, or water provided. So people had to make tents out of whatever blankets or tarps or anything that they could scrounge or had brought. And of course, then it rained and it rained and it rained. This was springtime and the spring rain set in and they were there until they were finally taken to the train that they'd been told they were going to be, you know, taken to a, a work camp. Um, in Hungary. And so that each step of the way, there was still a little hope that was offered and people clung to that hope um, until they finally, the, after several days, the, the box car they were in with 80, 90, 100 other people um, pulled, it stopped again. And then they heard German and Polish. And they realized, no, we're not in Hungary. This is something much worse. And of course, the Nazis were very careful never to, to say exactly what they were doing with people, because then it made, if, as long as people had hope, they were much less likely to rebel. So um, even at those last moments when they left the train, um, one clings to, to what you think might save you. 
And unfortunately, that final stop was Auschwitz-Birkenau. Upon arrival there, the twins were separated from their family. What happened next? Well, it was, um, they, and of course it was chaos. That was the selection platform that the SS guards and the SS doctors would select who would, at that point, they didn't even register the Jews. Um, that especially the, there were about 400,000 that were taken from Hungary and, the, and areas controlled by Hungary. And if they deemed that you were not of some work value or um, they would immediately select you to go to the gas chambers. And they would say, you know, you're going to the showers and you're going to go there because you'll take a shower, you'll be deloused, your clothes will be returned and then you'll be assigned to barracks. But, and so, um, but a lot of people, you know, people were realizing, well, this, this is not right and this isn't what's happening. So there were chaos. The, uh, a soldier looked at Miriam and Eva who were dressed identically and were identical twins. So he asked, are, are they Zwillinga, which are twins? And their mother asked, is that a good thing? And he said, you know, yes. So they were selected to become um, experiments for Dr. Joseph Mengele, who uh, was known as the angel of death of uh, Auschwitz. Why were the Nazis so interested in twins, Joe? Well, Mengele had this, of course, the whole Nazi kind of fantasy was that the Aryan race were pure ubermensch. They were the over men. The, and that if you were untermensch, which were Jews and gypsies and Slavic peoples, and I mean, they had all these categories that, and, and it kept expanding, that they were to either be, they were to be eliminated. And of course, killing people was, was the easiest uh, uh, solution for this insanity. But they also wanted to, how could we increase um, the Aryan race? And so twins, they thought, how can we induce um, German mothers to have twins, to have multiple births? So that way we can increase our numbers. And um, then they, other things too, like would it be possible for us to turn somebody of an inferior race into an Aryan. And I mean, it just the insanity of it, um, things like injecting chemicals into people's eyes to change their eye color. Um, when you read about the, these, well, in experiments, it's, I mean, they're, they're tortures. They're insane tortures that um, one would think uh, even a Dr. Frankenstein couldn't come up with. Uh, and when you see the photographs and read the documents 
and the testimony of people that survived it, it's just unbelievable. And these were children. And one thing that they wanted to keep the children alive, but if, if one of the twins died, then uh, Mengele considered the second twin of no use to them. So they would immediately kill the second twin. Yeah, the other utter devaluation of human life is sickening, and you're right. I mean, it's torture if you hear of some of these things happening to animals. The fact that they were doing these things to innocent children is just reprehensible beyond belief. Now, Eva ends up getting really sick with a fever that wouldn't go away. Where was she sent as a result, and what sort of resolve did she show in the face of near-certain death? Well, she knew that when they sent her to the infirmary, and which basically was you put somebody in there so they don't, whatever is wrong with them, they won't infect somebody else in their barracks and um, waited out because very little medical treatment was there. Even if you were considered valuable for their experiments. So Eva had, you know, they knew enough children had died, had been immediately killed after um, one of a twin had died. So she resolved that no matter what, she was going to stay alive and get back to her sister, Miriam. And it was, um, it, it created this life force in Eva that it gave her a very personal, specific goal. And, and it really kept her alive. So she struggled and stayed alive and eventually got back to the barracks with Miriam. What shape was Miriam in when Eva returned to her? And how did Eva risk her own life to help her sister out in that moment? Yeah, well, Miriam had, um, she had tried to get food to um, Eva in the, the infirmary and she had, she was emaciated. And so Eva knew that there was no way that the, what they were given this, um, I mean, it, gruel would be a, a nice way of, of calling what they, the sustenance they were given. So she knew that if she could volunteer to be one of the um, food carriers from the kitchen, that she might be able to steal and um, a little extra food and take back to the barracks for Miriam. And so um, she volunteered. She was given the, the duty with another girl to, to go and, and carry back this soup. And um, she tried stealing a potato and was caught by the uh, cook or one of the cooks. And of course, they in the camp made sure that if you had any infraction like that, that you were immediately taken out and hanged and put on public display. So it was, um, and they had seen 
the bodies of adults and children hanging as a warning. So Eva, of course, at that point, she got caught with this potato and she wasn't turned in to the SS. So she was sent out of the kitchen. She volunteered in the next few days. And so what kept them alive was she was able to steal potatoes. And, um, you know, so, and they would roast them. Um, and this is one of the things, if you ever go to Birkenau, um, and you can see the way the barracks were set up. There was a, a long brick um, structure in the center of the barracks. And then the, the, the well, they're slightly different than stock racks that you would see in a, in a barn, but basically the same thing. And then there was a stove at one end that gave a little bit of heat and uh, anybody who would, you know, take food would at night after their capo, um, the, you know, their barracks guard would have gone to sleep, who was also a prisoner, but usually were criminals. Um, they would roast potatoes on the stove and keep an eye out. So that a few potatoes kept them alive. Hmm. Going to fast forward just a little bit. After 10 months of this hell, the twins and countless others were saved by Russian forces. Eventually, after a little bit more time, the twins make their way back to the family farm in Ports, Transylvania. Who and what did they find there, Joe? Well, the the farm was still there. Um, they had... Um, and it's amazing that their mother had a little dachshund that was still on the farm. And the dachshund immediately ran up to the girls and greeted them, which was the only greeting that they had on that homecoming. They kept hoping that they would find their parents and their two older sisters who, um, you know, are holding on to that, that possibly they had survived as well. Um, and the, the story about the dachshund, uh, one reason I wanted to be sure and put that in, although it's, a, it's in some sense a very minor point, was that it really reminds me of the story of Odysseus in the Odyssey, when he returns to the island of Ithaca and nobody he had known or none of his family recognized him but his old dog recognizes him. And so I thought that that poignancy of our relationship to animals. But eventually they, uh, a cousin comes to, he comes to work the farm and uh, his, he and his mother have both survived and she lives in a city. And so the, the girls end up living with their aunt in the city who has remarried but um whose husband then by shortly thereafter after the war the uh communists take over the country and once again they the um well their farm and ports was confiscated 
by the government. Um, and so after the camps, they end up, you know, <laughs> as refugees and then under a, uh, another foreign communist government. And so it's, um, and Eva, by this time, I mean, she, she was defiant. She had been defiant all through her life, which actually preserved her life. And they just, she wanted to be out of there and to go to Israel. And along with the rest of the family, but they had to wait, uh, even though they had their documents and everything, it, it, it took a year or more for them to finally get on a boat and cross the Mediterranean. Now, Eva's fierce independence is extremely admirable. Now, why did she end up moving to Terre Haute, Indiana in the early 1960s? You know, it's, it is always amazing how people end up where they end <laughs> up. And um, her husband, Mickey, who um, just died a week ago, oh. a week and a half ago, um, he also was a... Um, a survivor of the camps, although he was not in one of the death camps in Poland. He uh, was in, you know, the uh, horrible camps, the concentration and work camps in Germany. And he had been um, liberated by American troops. And there was an officer from Terre Haute, Indiana, who saw this young teenager and liked him and saw this potential. And he said, if you will come back to the United States, I'm from Terre Haute, Indiana, I will sponsor you. You sponsor your citizenship and help you get educated. And so he came back and became an American citizen, you know, um, and lived in Terre Haute, graduated as a pharmacist from Purdue University and was visiting Israel and met Eva. And what, he was visiting his brother in Israel. And, and what's interesting, and it just shows how life is always filled with, well, just the incongruous situations. And he didn't speak Hebrew or Romanian or Hungarian. And, um, Eva didn't speak English or German or Latvian. <laughs> and he was originally from Riga, Latva, Latvia. But they, they fell in love, got married in a couple of weeks, and Eva moved to the United States, to Terre Haute. That is incredible. Now, when did Eva really begin to share her story publicly as somebody who had survived the atrocities of the Nazis, specifically at Auschwitz? Well, it's, uh, and uh, of course, uh, and the, it's a story about trauma, certainly in her adult life. I mean, and trauma is one of those uh, psychological states that I think so much more is being looked at these days and, and all the traumas that people have suffered in childhood or adulthood or even uh, the trauma that gets passed from one survivor to another. And so um, 
the movie, it was, um, I mean, I can remember when it was on, the uh, the movie The Holocaust with Meryl Streep and James Woods. Um, it was a very, very important television production. It went over two nights. And the local broadcaster, um, they had heard about Eva. They, they knew that there were some survivors of the, the camps there. And so they asked her after the movie if she would come on the local news broadcast and talk about her experience. And so um, it was what she had to say was so well received that they asked her back the next evening after the second episode of the movie, The Holocaust. And so um, she realized this was something she could do. She could articulate what she had experienced, which was impossible for people to fully understand. And so she, she wanted people to understand what had happened as much as they could. And um, so after that, she um, was invited to many gatherings um, to speak about this experience and the build up to the experience. And um, she spread the message of, you know, never forget. What links did she go to in making sure sure that the world knew specifically about the Auschwitz twin experiments? Well, and and of course, um, a lot of her later life, it is, um, you know, there there's this trauma, suffering from this trauma, the the buildup of the anger and the desperation and the fear that comes with that. And um, and she expressed she, that in a, a fairly hostile manner at times when talking about her experience and the Holocaust in general. And that actually rubs some people the wrong way, you point out in this book. Yeah, she, um, and in fact, um, on Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, we're in the Capitol Rotunda, Eli Wiesel, um, Nobel Peace Prize winner and author of uh, a book that if people haven't read is really, I would urge them to read about his experience in Auschwitz mm-hmm. called Night. Um, he, was, he was speaking and she stood up in this traumatic rage and started shouting because even as people were starting to to really remember and and work to to educate people about what had happened in the 30s and 40s in Europe, um, she thought nobody pays attention to what happened to the children, to the twins, these experiments, and she exploded. And after that, she, um, there were a lot of organizations that were afraid. You know, she, she is uncontrollable. And finally, she was, um, she started to rehabilitate that part of speaking in public. And she was asked to speak um, 
at a forum that dealt with medical ethics and asked if she could find a um, Nazi doctor to come and join her in speaking. And of course, I, and I write about it in the book, but she always joked about what? I look in the yellow pages for Nazi doctors. <laughs> and, um, she had come across the name of a Dr. Munch, who um, had been at Auschwitz. And he was willing to speak to her, not to, to go to this conference and speak, but to be, to be filmed or taped speaking with Eva. And he was the, the very first doctor that he had pledged, she asked him after speaking, if he would actually sign a legal affidavit, a legal witnessed affidavit telling what he had observed and experienced himself that was going on with the camps. And um, so after that, she thought, well, how could she possibly show her appreciation? And while washing dishes, which is always one of those, I think, transformative, transformative experiences, she had <laughs> a moment of revelation where I will forgive him. Hmm. But then her, uh, there was a professor at ISU, Indiana State University, who helped her translate and helped her with her English. And she said, well, you're forgiving him when he didn't have any direct contact with you at all and did not do you personal specific harm. Don't you think the people to forgive are the people like Mengele? And that was, it is absolutely mind boggling how she could get to that point. And, and it's, um, it's easy to misunderstand forgiveness. It doesn't mean she exonerated anybody of this horrible, um, you know, the murders, the, the, the genocides, the tortures. But it was, um, it was a way to save herself, is that she no longer had to carry that burden of anger and guilt and revenge. And um, I think probably the closest... I can think about it, and there, there are many cases where people have done something similar, not usually as, as um, public as Eva did, but there, there were the Amish families that several years ago when um, the milkman, uh, I believe it was, who just had some kind of a break, a psychotic break, and took uh, the school children, the Amish school children, and held them in their schoolroom and then killed some of the children and the Amish families forgave. Um, and then the, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, after all the evil that had been done during the apartheid, um, 
government. And once Mandela was freed and the African National Congress was elected, that Desmond Tutu, the Anglican archbishop, he said, you know, that it would make sense that there would be a bloodbath of revenge. Um, and in many ways justified, but we don't want that to happen. We want to end the pain and not continue it into this endless cycle um, that destroys not just lives, but our who we are as people. And so the Truth and Reconciliation, they they dealt with the, the crimes during the apartheid era, some of which are just in, incredible. And, um, and some people were sentenced to prison, some people were, but it was a way of finding justice without revenge and, and without the, the destruction of the, the people who had been harmed. Um, so Eva came to this life-saving uh, forgiveness. How has her life and activism changed after that? Well, she, um, she really became a, an evangelist for forgiveness and, um, and became just a, I, I mean, she was a, I didn't know her well, I, but I had met her I, um, and had been in her company and was on her, she took groups every um, summer to Auschwitz and Birkenau. And I was with her, with the group on that last trip that um, she died. And um, she had this uh, incredible facility for speaking to everyone in a way that was very plain, that was um, not sentimentalized, but very direct. And um, it, it was uh, amazing to hear her speak directly with um, kids and teenagers. Um, and when they would ask a question, she would answer it directly. And if she had, uh, if she wondered something about them and their life, she asked it directly. So she would ask, you know, why, why do you wear your pants so low? <laughs> you know, she would ask. And um, in fact, when I, I uh, was greeted by her when we entered the, the hotel that we stayed in in Krakow, she asked me, well, why the earring and why the tattoo on your arm? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I, I used to work on the circus, so it's occupational. <laughs> you know, but she, she was a, a wonderful, cantankerous, warm direct human being and just had this this quality that people wanted to hear her and this remarkable energy even on the her the last day of her life um was when you would think that she had had um heart surgery a few months before that trip and um still when when i first saw her speak in Terre Haute, 
she stood up and spoke for two hours. And this, you know, 85 year old woman who was had did have was suffering some serious health issues. And but it was like she wanted people to know and she wanted to hear what people had to say. She um, and so the, the last day at um, when she met the group in Birkenau and that was the, the summer that had been you know, the incredible heat wave across Europe. And she'd been there the week before with primarily um, high school students. And this was a, a smaller and and older, well, we could say more seasoned <laughs> group. Um, but the first thing she did when she got to Birkenau, she had heard that the, um, it, well, she'd been told that there were the male members of the Los Angeles Youth Choir was there and they wanted to meet her. And so there at the gates of Birkenau, um, which they almost could have put like the gates of hell in Dante, you know, lose all hope, you, you enter here. They sang to her, but if, they, and you can see it's a, there's a wonderful, um, somebody documented it it's a, and you can find it on YouTube um, that there is a delay after the boys are ready to sing to her and this delay and she had to wait and put on lipstick before <laughs> they would sing because she, she was a human being, a lady, and this is what she did. She, um, you know, she was going to look her best. And so it's, it's, it was, um, wonderful and touching. And then she spent the rest of the afternoon with us going to the selection platform. The last place she had seen her older sisters and her mother and father. And then sitting between the ruins of the main um, gas chambers and crematoria and talking to us and taking questions. And then there would be other people who would be there that would hear her and they would say, well, who is this? And she would engage them in conversation. And um, so it was, it was a, a remarkable final day. And then spent dinner with us mm -hmm. and, you know, then went up to the hotel room and, and that was, and died early that morning but fully engaged with us and with life up until those last moments. Last question, Joe. In the final pages of this beautiful book, Forgiveness, you list the five life lessons that Eva not only lived by, but also made sure to impart on any group that she spoke with. Which is your favorite of those five lessons? Well, you know, it's a... Uh... It's hard to say which is the the favorite, but she, um, you know, her life lessons were, I mean, they, they are, in a sense, simple, but boy, are they hard to, to achieve. But, of course, you know, the, um, 
forgiveness, forgive your worst enemy. It will heal your soul and set you free. But probably the fifth one, each of us has a part to play in repairing our world. May I be the change I wish to see. And um, being that change and however we can do it. Um, I, on the second trip that, we, that my wife and I took with the, the group from her Candles Museum, we were all given buttons that said, be kind. And being kind is a great way to start repairing the world. Um, and it's hard thing to do. And it's not always the easy choice, but it's, it's a great start. So I think we have to be the change. Joe Lee is a cartoonist, illustrator, writer, and former circus clown. Yes, you heard that last part correctly. And he's also just published a graphic novel about the Holocaust called Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz twin experiments. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Joe, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful and important book. Well, thank you, Trey. Thank you. I think we we can do... What we can do to repair the world and finding a way to tell a story like this is a good way to do it. So, No doubt about that. Take care, Joe. Thank you, Trey. Join me next time when I speak with Tony-winning actor of stage and screen Alan Cumming on Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.